Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff. Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a wonderful and informative show for you this evening. AME extraordinaire Dr. Brent Blue is here with us, and we're going to learn all sorts of things about what's uh, going on in the FAA, things that can help you, and changes uh, that we are hoping will happen at some point in the future to help streamline aero medical and the entire uh, area of this. Before we get started, of course, a few things. First of all, uh, as we uh, are always doing here at Social Flight, we're promoting aviation events. More and more are coming back. And as we are talking with many of the organizer of, organizers of Young Eagle events, uh, of pancake breakfasts and fly-ins and car and air shows and food truck things, one of the biggest things that we're getting from them is there aren't enough of these events out there. Be sure that you are supporting all of them. And you can do all of that simply by going to socialflight.com and seeing what is happening. If you know what events are happening in your backyard, well, then chances are you're going to go and fly instead of mowing the lawn this weekend. So be sure to go to socialflight.com or get the free Social Flight mobile app uh, for Apple and Android devices and you can see what's happening get out there and fly with a mission. And when you actually fly, if you have the app, you can check in and get points in our Fly to Win Challenge. And that's so great because you only need to do that once to be entered in the challenge that actually gets you in for, to win this prize period, which is happening on July 1st. On July 1st, we are giving away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. That's a six thousand dollar value a great prize we love to give things away here at social flight so be sure to check that out get out there and fly the more you fly uh if you're in the uh, top 30 in our leaderboard you get an extra chance to win so get out there fly check all of that out now uh, after this show we will be off for a couple of weeks we may actually be back the week of july 4th but uh, otherwise we'll be back on the uh, 12th of july and what we are doing during that time you are going to get a peek into when we release the video and it's something we're going to encourage all of you to try for yourselves what we are doing is something called our No Magenta Line trip. Social Flight's No Magenta Line adventure is that we are going to simply take off and head in a direction. We will not be using the navigation in terms of putting in an airport, searching for it, going direct to. We're gonna wander the skies and we're gonna only use our navigation systems in order to make sure that we don't wander into airspace or weather or something that really matters from that regard. But other than that, we're going to see the Northeast United States and head towards the central part of the country simply by looking down and finding cool places that we can circle, look around, check out the airport, 
go land, pull out our folding bikes and do an adventure. And so I'm really looking forward to this. We'll bring you along with our uh, uh, video that we make after it. And then we'll encourage all of you to send in your stories and your pictures of just going up and doing some adventure for yourself without a destination. No magenta line from social flight. Be sure to check that out. Now, I'd like to introduce Dr. Brent Blue. Dr. Blue is one of the leading voices in the aviation medical examiner community, helping to support general aviation and advocate for reform where it's appropriate in the FAA aeromedical system. His articles in AOPA are extremely informative, honest, and direct, and I really value that. In short, Dr. Blue is the type of AME that we all want to trust with our personal medical certification. He's board certified in family medicine and emergency medicine, as well as being an FAA senior AME. In addition to his medical qualifications, Dr. Blue is an active pilot. He's ATP rated with over 10,000 flight hours. He flies an amazing aircraft that you have to see if you're going to Oshkosh. It'll be there, which is a Norseman, very, very rare aircraft, as well as a Cessna 185. I'm going to bring Dr. Blue on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Dr. Brent Blue. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show because I'll tell you, if there is one thing in an area that pilots care about deeply uh, because it's a vulnerability for all of us, it is certainly aeromedical and uh, their medical certificates. Well, you know, we're all just one uh, one aviation medical from being a uh, a paraglider. So it's you know it's one of those things that it can be very scary for pilots, uh, especially if they develop a medical problem uh, between medicals. So uh, uh, it, it's I mean it, it's I, I can't tell you how frightened some pilots are when they come in to see me. Yeah, you know your your job must have a portion of it that's that's medicine a portion of it that's, of course, all of the regulatory side of things and helping that. But it, it, you bring up a really good point. A part of it's got to be the, the emotional support of fellow pilots. Well, it is. And, and of course, my, my uh, approach to uh, flight medicals is doing everything I can to keep people in the air. And sometimes pilots do some things that, that make, it, uh, make it a little bit more difficult, like they'll go into the emergency room with chest pain and uh, they get discharged because they had some musculoskeletal problem, but they write on their uh, aviation medical that they had a heart attack. Well, that's, they didn't have a heart attack. So, so it's, and then we have to explain that away. So, um, uh, so you know, it's, uh, we try to do our best and in, in explain to the pilots what they need to put down and how they need to put it down. But, uh, and I also always encourage pilots to call me first if there's any question about uh, filling out the 8500 form online. So uh, the more they call, the, the the less problems we tend to have. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I, I want to dig into the medical side of things, but before we do that, I have immense amount of respect for you as, as a human being, as a pilot, as an advocate for everyone. And I want to make sure they get to know you for a little bit. So if you could just give a, a quick background on your aviation experience, how you got to this to 10,000 hours ATP Norseman, that, that aircraft is amazing. <laughs> well, I, uh, I I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, but I didn't start to fly until I was in college. I took uh, 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 a summer school course uh, down in Nashville at Vanderbilt when I was in school, and I, I went to school in the morning and went to uh, the airport and learned to fly in the afternoon. So I got my, my 
private pilot uh, uh, certificate in about a 10 week period in Nashville. And then um, uh, got my instrument rating uh, after I finished uh, my first year of med school and did that. And I really just sort of found an instructor and said, let's fly every day until we get this done and got that done. And, uh, and I've been able to uh, acquire ratings over the years and, and uh, be able to fly for work and uh, various uh, things in order to, to build up the hours. And uh, of course, uh, as you uh, mentioned in the, in the prelim, I mean, the more people fly, uh, the better it is and the, with the, the more experience you have, the safer you're going to be. Absolutely. I, you know, we don't show many pictures here during the show, but I do want to show something now. And uh, that is, so this is, this is you with your 185, a little more, a little more conventional aircraft. It's a, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty nice uh, photo you've got there. Um, this, this is the amazing Norseman. <laughs> Yeah, well, the the one thing about the Norseman is it is huge. Uh, I mean, it really, from an interior space point of view, it's it's basically the same size as a a two eight two eight caravan. Uh, it's a big airplane. That's a thirteen forty six hundred horsepower Pratt and Whitney engine. Uh, it uh, you know it's it's it holds a lot of fuel. It holds about one hundred sixty gallons. It burns about thirty thirty to thirty four gallons an hour, and it flies really slow. It's about it's about a hundred miles an hour, no matter what you do. And and what and what about oil usage? It's usually some people with radials quote. Oils oil is done in gallons. It has a ten gallon oil tank, and I buy oil in fifty five gallon drums. So it's, uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of if I when we fly to Oshkosh, I mean we we take a significant amount of oil with us because we use one hundred twenty weight oil that's not available everywhere. So we just have huge bottles of, uh, of oil with us that uh, we have to use. And it, it burns a fair amount of oil. Wow. Well, so for anyone going to AirVenture to Oshkosh this year, um, be sure to check out on the flight line. You'll see that aircraft. Uh, and that is definitely one in a million. So that's a little bit of background. Now, you're actually also the Teton County Coroner. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Hopefully not directly connected with your AME work. No, that uh, I ended up as well. I, I shouldn't say I ended up. I, 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 the coroner office in uh, in Wyoming is an elected office, and uh, and I truly ran as a public service. I, I, to be coroner, the qualifications in the state of Wyoming uh, uh, are basically two: you have to be eighteen, and you have to be a registered voter. Uh, so. <laughs> There's no educational qualifications, so I'm only the, I'm the first doctor uh, to be coroner in Teton County, Wyoming, and only second only the second doctor in the history of the state. So I really did it as as a as a public service because uh, I really didn't need another job. I promise you. But uh, it's been it's been interesting, and of course we had a, a very a well known case back in the fall that uh, we got quite a bit of national and international attention. Uh, it, but it's it's been an interesting job. But I I can I mean we're, uh, we're we have a very wealthy county here, and we had a uh, very uh, substandard morgue and office when I first took office. So I've changed a lot of things since I've taken office, and uh, we've got things up to snuff now. Wow. Well, that's great, and I'm sure they're very appreciative of that. Um, so to get started on the medical side of things, uh, you. Uh, as as we've talked about, you're a very, very strong advocate, not just serving as an AME, but trying to do everything that you can to help pilots uh, get through the system, especially if they have complicated things. And we, I'd like to focus on a couple things uh, uh, during tonight's show. One of them uh, is to talk about 
the third, the, you know, the third class medical versus where we are right now with basic med and what pilots need to know about that and how basic med could help them compared to a third class medical. And then, uh, and then we can talk about uh, mental health issues a little bit later on. Well, I, I think, I think the important thing to remember is that, uh, when I perform a third class medical on somebody, I'm certifying them that day that they're safe to fly. And every day they get into the airplane between medicals, whether it's a two year medical or they're younger and it's a five year medical, every time they get into an airplane, they're essentially self certifying that they're medically safe to fly. And that system has been extremely uh, effective. I mean, the, the, the percentage of accidents that have any medical relationship at all is about one half of 1% of the accidents. So it's, a, it's almost a non-number. And, wow. and, and since basic med was introduced, uh, we have now about 70,000 pilots uh, that, uh, that, uh, that are on basic med. And uh, that was a program that really was spearheaded by the AOPA and, and Sam Graves, who's the congressman from Northwest Missouri. Um, the accident rate basically between third class medicals uh, holders and uh, uh, basic med holders is essentially the same. So um, that always begs the question, what are we doing uh, with third class medicals? Um, the, the question that I, I asked uh, uh, Mike Berry, who was the previous federal air surgeon, and when he was at Oshkosh, he he gave a lecture and he, he commented that the uh, number of accidents uh, per hour had dropped dramatically over the previous 30 years. And I said uh, to Dr. Berry, I said, you know, we're about the same age. We've been doing AME medicals for about the same period of time. And I said, when we started, the only people who had medical problems who could get uh, a third class medical was um, uh, or pilots who had high blood pressure on one of five medicines, and that was it. If you had cancer or heart disease or anything else, you were stuck, you weren't gonna be flying. And now that the FAA has relaxed rules uh, over the period of time, uh, but the accident rate has dropped, I asked him how you correlate that. And his answer was, well, we, that, that they mitigate the risk. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we mitigate the risk by, by testing more. But I said, if 99% of everybody who goes through the testing gets certified, are we really doing anything? And, and of course, there was no answer to that question. So <laughs> I, I really think that, that uh, uh, I mean, I encourage pilots to go to basic med and uh, the AOPA, uh, um, I'm working with them as well. They're working very hard to try to get uh, basic med accepted uh, internationally, not just in Canada, but literally all over the world, because there are other um, aviation entities in different countries that have essentially a basic med type program, but there, there's no universal standard in that there has to be an order for people to be able to cross borders. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Of course, for those of us in the Northern latitudes uh, uh, here, myself included, the ability to fly to Canada uh, on basic med certainly impacts a lot of people. And so it'd be great to see something like, like that change. What, when someone's considering a basic med versus a third class medical, uh, there's limitations, of course. Uh, you can get information from AOPA on that, what altitude you can fly at, how many seats you can have, the weight of the aircraft, things like that. But aside from that, can you tell me a little bit about the advantages or disadvantages or why someone would be on a third-class medical aside from a, a restriction uh, of what type of aircraft or where they could fly it? Well, well, first, let me say that uh, I can't remember the exact number, but I, I think it's right around 95 percent 
of all GA pilots of uh, fly aircraft and aircraft uh, type missions that would fall under basic med without any restrictions. So it, there's only a very few number. Uh, I mean, folks who are flying more than five passengers or flying uh, aircraft uh, more than 6,000 pounds or they're flying over 18,000 feet. Those are the main, the big, the big restrictions. But the, the, if you, if you hear about, well, what, why people uh, get a third class, I, I think the reason I hear the most is actually going into Canada at this point. It is, um, uh, it is not, it's not because they're, they're flying at high altitudes and that sort of thing. It's really the ability to go into Canada. Uh, the other thing I like to remind people is that you can actually hold both. You can have a basic med and a third class medical. Hmm. There's no problem in doing that. And also you're not penalized if you get if you go to basic med and then decide three or four years down the line that you want to that you want to go back to a third class medical. There's no penalty in doing that. So uh, uh, it can, and the, the the thing is that some of the recurrent well, one of the reasons I, I, I suggest basic med to a lot of people is that they're they're on special issuances, and they have pretty onerous annual testing that they have to do that mm -hmm. literally costs thousands of dollars and 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 money that uh, that is not going to be reimbursed by insurance. And so, uh, uh, in in those situations, basic med makes much more sense than doing the the onerous uh, recurrent testing. And and that gets back to my my point that I've made multiple times is it is that uh, it, it's very frustrating for me to have a, a pilot who comes in who may have a world famous cardiologist say he's fit to fly and then sends his paperwork into uh, to Oklahoma City and then they say oh you got to have this test or this test in order to prove you're safe to fly and mm -hmm. that gets to be a little crazy now it I think historically uh, to understand where that comes from in the 50s and 60s, uh, when uh, they were really uh, pushing the medical uh, certificates, uh, they, our ability to diagnose uh, various diseases and various um, uh, heart conditions and so on was much uh, more limited than it is now. Now we have imaging studies, we have heart catheterizations, we have, uh, we're, we're much better at determining uh, the extent of someone's illness. I mean, we have MRIs to look to make sure somebody doesn't have metastatic disease in their brain and, and various things like that. Doesn't that, that. doesn't that background actually lend itself to being even more important that it's the treating doctor, the treating physician, that it's the medical staff that knows the patient to having uh, being the voice like basic med does of that them being OK? Because is it do the doctors at Oklahoma City? Are they really expected to have enough of an expertise as time keeps going on and more and more text, tests, more specialization uh, happens to be able to keep up with that, as you said, like the world's leading cardiologist? Well, what, what I was getting what I was getting to it uh, is that the, the difference between a aeromedical specialist, of which there are very few in the United States and a, and a uh, a, a physician who's practicing modern medicine in the United States, the difference in their ability to determine whether somebody's fit to fly, that, that difference has, has come down to a very, very thin line. And uh, the, I mean, the, 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 the ICAO regulations for um, uh, AMEs says that an AME is an aeromedical specialist. But, you know, we go initially to a five-day course and then we do a recurrent course every three years. I, I, I don't think that makes us a specialist, and especially for, for uh, AMEs who are not pilots. Uh, mm -hmm. 
is uh, many of them have never flown in a GA airplane. So, um, but I do think that the, the, the ability now to determine what's going on with somebody's heart, what's going on with their cancer, uh, what's going on with their kidney stones. I mean, all these different things that we run into, uh, we are so much better now at, at determining that with various imaging and testing that uh, it just doesn't make sense that we have to do so much stuff uh, to satisfy a checklist in Oklahoma City. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, I know I know my FAA folks in Oklahoma City are, are just cringing when I say that, but that's just, it's just the truth. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully they're, at least when they get the information to review, they're trusting the outside expert that that's with the patient, that that's patient facing. I think one of the biggest challenges is, is that these decisions are being made largely by people that aren't facing the patient, correct? and they have to rely on information from people who are. That's correct. That's correct. And and the, the computerized medical record is fraught with error. <laughs> and, and all it takes is one keystroke, uh, and the error is in the record, and it is very difficult to get off. I, I actually had a pilot who uh, had had some sort of uh, uh, hospitalization for a surg- minor surgical procedure, and somehow... It, uh, someone checked the box, uh, and it's very easy to do, by the way, because I've, I've made the mistake myself, checked that he had a narcotic uh, dependency. And to get that off, and it was very difficult, and he had literally threatened the hospital with legal action because there was no documentation of why that diagnosis was on there. And, of course, if that diagnosis was sent to Oklahoma City in the medical record, there would have been all sorts of red flags going off. And mm-hmm. uh so the, and and that, when I say it's easy to make that mistake, I promise you, it is incredibly easy to add a diagnosis to somebody's record that is totally wrong. Uh, and and it, all it has to do with is it, it's a, it has to do with when you're typing in a diagnosis, uh, you may type the first three letters and it gives you a diagnosis. And if you hit return before you think about it, it's listed. And and wow. to get off of there, it takes some work. Wow. You know, the the other thing that I've always wondered is there's such a connection with insurance that people go in, they they see a doctor, they see a therapist, a counselor, anything. And even if they do not think they have been diagnosed, often in order to be billed, aren't aren't there codes that have to do with diagnoses? Well, there there are. And and in most situations, the physicians and providers think they're doing the patient a favor by putting as many diagnosis codes in there as they possibly can, uh, because that helps the patient get reimbursed uh, by the insurance company. So they may list obesity, and they may, they, I mean, they, they'll, they'll, list, they'll list all sorts of stuff. Uh, and because and the more diagnosis, the, the, the better the insurance companies tend to pay, but it obviously has a significant impact on the pilot if that record ever goes to Oklahoma City. Right. Um, from from a, a perspective of someone kind of living with a third class medical versus living with uh, a basic med, and you mentioned you can have, have them concurrently, um, what are the differences in terms of that self-certification versus what you have to report? Is there, is there a difference when something happens during that time frame? Um, well, First thing is, is that there, there's, whether you have a basic med 
uh, uh, medical or you have a third class medical, uh, you are certifying you are safe to fly when you get in that cockpit. So, so regardless of the regulations, uh, even if you just have a bad cold, uh, that may be something that you might not want to get into that airplane with because you may have significant problems with equalization of, of pressure in your ears or your sinuses. So, so that self-certification is no different between the basic med program or the third-class medical program. The, the basic med exclusions are, are, have to do with neurologic disease, cardiovascular disease, and psychiatric disease. Those are the three big ones. Um, so what that means is, is if you were to develop a kidney stone on basic med, you would not necessarily need to report that. If you develop a kidney stone on third-class medical, you would need to report that and ground yourself until you, you either uh, got permission from the FAA to continue to fly or went back to your AME because kidney stones could come under a khaki uh, clearance, which is conditions AMEs can issue. And by the way, the khaki program, the conditions AMEs can issue, has expanded uh, uh, dramatically since its inception to include a significant number of things that used to be special issuances that now the AME can issue. And, and the more power to the FAA, the more khakis they can come out with, the better it is. But it's, it, I mean, you know, AMEs are, are you know, they're, they're good docs. I mean, I've, I've, there's only, I've only run in my entire career doing this. I've only run across a couple AMEs that were not too hot, uh, <laughs> but uh, they, you know, the, the AMEs really should be given as much authority to issue as they possibly can. Absolutely. I mean, that makes so much sense. And, and the entire spectrum going from Oklahoma City further out to the AMEs and then also out in basic med to the actual personal doctors and specialists that someone's seeing, it seems like the more you empower people out uh, at, the, uh, at the patient level, um, the, hopefully the, the better diagnosis, the better management that you get. Correct. And, and uh, a lot of uh, uh, people who have third-class medicals will delay care because they are concerned about their effect on their medical, which is a significant issue. So that's really important. I'd like to talk about that for a minute, and I'm really glad that you brought that up. The, we in, in aviation seem to have this uh, kind of old, deep-rooted approach of, of people being supermen, that, that to be a pilot you ha you you're supposed to be a perfect specimen in every possible way and above all else because others are entrusting their lives to you in the air and on the ground and that's the philosophy at the cockpit of airlines and, and the military and all of these things and it seems that we have an environment when it comes to aeromedical that says you can't break you can't break down about that you can't open up and be and be really open about your putting your health first because you're risking uh, being open about things that could either hurt your career or your lively, you know, livelihood of your passion. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you've seen over the years and, and how you think we can improve that to help people's lives without hiding things. Well, I, <laughs> I, I think that's an FAA question. I mean, the, <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is like I, I've had pilots who've had what are called palpitations or an irregular heartbeat that they feel. And they, they don't go to have it checked out because they're worried that they might have something that can ground them. Now, the far majority of people that, that have 
irregular heartbeats are, are totally normal. But some people may have atrial fibrillation or they may have something called atrial flutter, which is similar, uh, and that would ground them and would require them to get special issuances and, and go through a, a significant amount of cardiac workup. So they will delay that care. Well, the problem, of course, is if you have atrial fibrillation and you're delaying care, you're, you're at a much higher risk of stroke. And so uh, it's, not, it's not worth doing that. And I always say to pilots, your life is more important than, than anything that, with the FAA. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's just uh, what happens. And, and uh, as we'll see in the, when we start talking about mental health, that happens a significant amount of the time. That makes a lot of sense. So, so when we talk about the differences, you mentioned one uh, in particular as a great example being kidney stones. If someone is on basic med and they encounter that, they certainly self-certify their inability to fly during that time, but then they're working with their personal physician on the physician saying, no, you're not likely to get another incident, I think you're in good shape. And that that's, they just stay in that world. They don't have to report that. But on a on a third class medical, that could be something that could theoretically knock them out of the ability to fly for quite some time, if not permanently. Is that true? Well, uh, no, it, it wouldn't be permanent uh, unless unless they had multiple stones and uh, they had a condition that was that would uh, create a situation where they are likely to have uh, 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 stones in the future. Uh, it, it under the, the issue really becomes: Do they? go and report this to the FAA and, and uh, go through that paperwork or whether they go to the AME uh, and cause the, cause you know, even though you may have gotten your medical three months ago, you can go to the AME and get another medical and get certified under the khaki program for a kidney stone. Now that's only for conditions that are khaki conditions. If you have a heart attack or you've had chest pain and get a stent, you're going to be grounded until the FAA gives you uh, your medical. It's not going to be something you can go back to your AME and get a new exam and, and get certified. So it depends on the condition, uh, but there are a lot of conditions now that the uh, that, that fall under khaki that, that you can go back to the AME and get certified. And, and I'll give you another example. Somebody could develop hypothyroidism and uh, be treated successfully without any problem, they can go back to their AME and get a khaki for hypothyroidism and not have to necessarily go through the FAA special issuance program. Mm -hmm. And by the way, just this is, you know, uh, you, can, you can find the, a, the AME guide online. If you just Google FAA AME guide, the entire book is there you, and it's searchable. So you can find out everything you want to about conditions. You can search uh, for khaki, all the khaki conditions that are on there. You can, you can find out, even if you're going to have to go through the special issuance uh, area, you can find out what's required for each special issuance and what's, what tests are required. It's, and it can be sometimes daunting to go through because it's different between a third class and a first and second class. So uh, you have to pay attention to that, but, but it's all available online. It, 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 there's no secrets about what the FAA is requiring. That makes sense. You mentioned also people can have concurrent the, the, the third class medical and they can go and, and just uh, be under uh, basic med and take the courses and get the sign off. Does, I, 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 was, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about if you do that, as long as you have an active uh, third-class medical, you still have that FAA reporting requirements that are specific to that. Is that true, or, or how does correct. that work when you're both? If you, if you have a third-class medical 
regardless of anything else, you got to report to the FAA uh, uh, if you could develop a condition that, that is, uh, impacts flying. So, uh, whether you have a basic med or not, if you've got the third class medical, you have to report that. Okay. Uh, so people really only once it expires and they're on basic med al alone, that's, that's when the basic med rules are all that govern them. Right. Now the other, there's two other two other points I want to make uh, in in this area. One is is if you're under a special issuance, you can go to basic med. In other words, you don't have to stay on this on the on the special issuance. You don't have to renew it. You can go to basic right. med and not renew it. That's one point. If you are going to need a special issuance, it is critically important that you have all your paperwork done and organized and sent in in one package. You don't want it dribbling in over, over a period of weeks or months because what happens when you do that is, is that it may not get checked off as being complete. Mm -hmm. So if you have everything done in one package, then, it, then it's far easier for the FAA and it's far easier for the pilot. It's also important to pay attention to the rules because if the rule says do a stress test after three months, you can't do it at two months and 29 days. It's got to be after three months. So uh, those dates are important to the FAA. And I've literally had people who've had to repeat a, a stress test or some other testing just because they were a day or two early, because that's just the way the rules are. Yeah, uh, that's I think that's key with the government, right? The rules are the rules. <laughs> the rules are the rules. <laughs> Period. So let's switch and, and talk a little bit as you talk, as you touched on, um, to mental health. You wrote a wonderful article about uh, some of the things that have to do that, that, that could change uh, in the future that would be nice to change. It, it, if there's one area that has that Superman concept that everyone is under, it seems to be mental health. Uh, it's an issue, an issue that I think pilots don't want to talk about at all. And if you look, it seems to me that if you look at the average population and regular statistics about uh, who's on some form of medication, who experiences different types of, of, of uh, mental health uh, issues, the population of the world and who has these things is nothing like the population of the pilots. And so it's hard to imagine we're all supermen. I mean, I think no one, we're not all perfect. I think the difference seems to be people just want to hide that. Tell me about your commentary, because I really love the article that you wrote in AOPA on this. Well, the, the, the issue of how um, the FA um, evaluates and uh, treats depression is, is antiquated. That's just the way it is. Uh, the, it's, I think it stems from um, a previous uh, 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 head of the, the uh, psychiatric department, the chief psychiatrist, who was, he himself was pretty antiquated. And uh, the, the, I mean, it, it gets down to who would you rather fly with? A pilot who is depressed and needs antidepressants or a pilot who's depressed who's on antidepressants? Uh, I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. And the FAA has done some things. I mean, they, they have, uh, they now allow uh, pilots with depression to be on one of four antidepressant medications. And, and the key word there is one. They can't be on two. They have to be on one. And there's a bunch of criteria and so many hoops to jump through that are just silly. Uh, I mean, the yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen those paper. regs. They're they're painful and they're 
they're the oldest medications. They're not up to date with the latest things that people use. And it just seems mind boggling. It, it is mind boggling. And it is, it is really unfortunate. And because of that, uh, as you know, in that article, I asked people to complete a survey. There were three questions on the survey. And uh, one of the, I mean, I, I'm not going to give it away because it's coming out in the August issue of the AOPA, <laughs> but a significant number of people uh, do not seek mental health uh, care because of their uh, the possible effect on their pilot medical. A significant number of people uh, are taking antidepressants that they've never reported to the FAA. And a very significant number of people feel that the FAA does not handle mental health issues appropriately. So, um, but they are making some progress. Dr. Northrup, Susan Northrup, who is a GA pilot and the federal air surgeon, uh, just came out at the end of uh, May with uh, uh, some new regs on depression. And, and what those regs are that if, um, uh, and, and, and I'm not going to say this in exact terminology, but if it's been more than five years that a pilot has had an episode of depression that was related to a stimulus or a stressor that would make anyone in the general population depressed and was depressed and treated either with or without medications for less than six months, then the AME can issue. If, they, if that occurred less than five years ago, uh, or less than five years before the pilot comes into the AME's office, then the AME has to request the clinical records uh, from uh, uh, treating uh, uh, doctors or, or psychologists, and uh, the pilot has, has, was on medicine for less on medicine or considered depressed for less than six months. Then the AME can issue, but that record has to be forwarded to Oklahoma City. Uh, to be put in the airman's file. It doesn't have to be reviewed, as I understand it, in Oklahoma City, but has to be, uh, but has to be put in the, in, the, in the file. So, but the problem with that is, is that if, if the pilot was on uh, medicine or was considered depressed for more than six months, or um, they, they, it, was, it didn't occur related to some sort of stressor. What I mean by stressor, going through a divorce or somebody in the family dies or whatever, something like that. Uh, then they would still have to go through the normal special issuance process. And uh, it's a tiny step forward, but we, the FAA has so much further to go. They really yeah. do. And I, I applaud Dr. Northrup for, for at least making that step. And, and Dr. Northrup was here on the show. She's, she's wonderful. I'm sure that she's fighting an uphill battle herself in trying to get change in some of these areas. But I mean, I, I've known people that that have had to go through some of this, and the the challenges are staggering, absolutely staggering to the try process to. Itself is depressing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I would be depressed if I had to go through that. <laughs> we we you know when we think about like the the criminal justice system, you're right. You're innocent until proven guilty. When you think about how it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but how it seems to me that the FAA approaches mental health issues is you're, it's the opposite. You are considered, you have to prove that you are essentially sane, stable, you know, without any of these things. You don't have to prove that you're, you're through it. There are all these tests and, and things that, that you have to go through that, um, amaze me that a normal pilot could pass if we administered to everyone. 
Well, that, that's correct. But that's not just mental health. That's really almost across the board. The, the, the pilot is considered um, not safe to fly until he, he or she proves himself safe to fly. And um, uh, I mean, that, and that's just the unfortunate way of doing things. But the, the, the I mean, basic med is kind of proven that uh, with a, with that the accident rate is no different, that, that the third class medical may be totally irrelevant. And, uh, and, and we have to ask ourselves, well, if the accident rate's the same between basic med and third class medicals, why do we have to have third class medicals? I mean, that's obviously the question. I think it's obviously different for first and second class medicals because then somebody's being paid to fly there. When you, when somebody gets into an airplane, whether it's a charter or an airliner, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're expecting a certain level of, 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 uh, um, a safety that that you may not expect when you when you get into an airplane with a third class medical. I mean, when we get into somebody's car, we're not expecting the same level of safety as if we were getting into a Greyhound bus. And and, and you know, so that's that's uh, I mean, that's important to remember. Uh, but then again, when I talk about you know the the basic med program, uh, a lot of people like myself who will certify people on basic med. We also certify uh, uh, DOT certificates, Department of Transportation certificates, for people who are driving, uh, you know, 18 wheelers that are carrying, you know, a couple uh, thousand gallons of gasoline. And so the the risk factor is is I mean it's it's all relative. And so I'm I don't I know some doctors get concerned about signing off basic med and have no problem signing off the 18 wheelers. I I just don't <laughs> understand. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. That's a that's a good point, right? There's this baseline fear of of flying, which permeates people's you know ability to be willing to sign off on other people that that fly. Um, you know, one of the things when you mentioned the difference between third class medical and basic med, mental health does seem to be an area that's treated very different between that. Because if you're on, and pl again, please inform me. It, but it seems that someone on basic med, if something uh, does happen, if, if they, they go through any type of situation, again, they're essentially not allowed to fly while they're on certain medications, but they're still self-certifying as opposed to the third class uh, medical where you then have to go through all the hoops you described. That's correct. And now there are exclusions in basic med that you cannot fly or you can't be certified and you can't continue to fly under basic med uh, in the psychiatric realm. The problem is that a lot of these things are very subtle and, and, and the way that the physician or psychologist approaches them, uh, can be different because there's, there's a, there's not a lot of difference. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it's not a lot, but there it's, it can be very subtle. The difference between a minor depression, which would not affect your basic med and a major depression, which would, or a personality disorder, which is a whole different ball game, uh, or uh, of course schizophrenia is a little bit easier to delineate. But some of these, some of these, uh, the the criteria, the don, uh, the diagnostic criteria, can be very subtle. And so um, uh, that's. But you have to remember too, in order to get a basic med exam, you have to have a third class medical first. So right. uh, so if somebody has an ongoing psychiatric illness, like of uh, schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder, uh, they're, they're not going to pass their, their, their third class medical, so they're not going to qualify for basic med. Right, and, right. And the thing that, that 
you know, a lot of people have to remember is there are some people that shouldn't be in airplanes and, and that's just the way it is. But it's a, actually a very, very small percentage of people who apply for medicals. That, that makes sense. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, since you do have to go through a, a medical first before you qualify, this doesn't do anything about the past. It, it seems to me that basic med is about the future. It's about where you are now and kind of positioning yourself, just like people buy insurance or people set themselves up in different situations so that you have more leeway. If something happens, you lose a job, something else, you don't have to worry as much about seeking help um, and what might happen in the system if, if, you have, if you have to be beholden to the system. Well, that's correct. But you have to be careful because there are those three areas, the, the um, uh, psychiatric area, the neurologic area, and the cardiovascular area. And there are some very subtle differences because, for instance, uh, under basic med, uh, uh, it doesn't say cardiovascular problems. It says coronary artery disease. So somebody could conceivably develop atrial fibrillation, not on the basis of a coronary artery disease, and they would they could still stay on basic med. But if they had a heart attack related to a blocked coronary artery, they could ha they have to go back and get their third class medical all over again in order to qualify for basic med again. So there there are subtleties, and and there's a lot of information that's online. Uh, there's a lot of information you get from AOPA's uh, uh, programs. Uh, and calling their their uh, medical line and their their uh, uh, their uh, it's a PPP program, but I can't remember what it stands for. It's not preferred provider. Pilot but protection program. Pilot protection program. Yeah, glad you said that because I'm one of their people that does that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Baker will kill me. But anyways, the the uh, uh, you know there's a lot of help out there, and and the the other thing that's important is is you can call an AME. And, and ask for their opinion. Now, if they don't want to talk to you over the telephone, uh, you know, uh, they can, you can make an appointment to see them. Is, and, and, uh, or you can call a different AME if you need to do that or, or email. I mean, people email me all the time. Uh, the, the other thing is, is that nothing goes to the FAA unless you hand your 8,500 confirmation number to that AME. So in other words, when you go online and fill out the 8500 form, uh, that stays in, in online in the cloud for, I think it's 60 days. I don't think it's 90. I think it's 60. Uh, and after 60 days, it, it evaporates. So it, uh, so, but if you hand that to me and I plug it into the system, it's in the system and I have to submit it, whether you have an exam or not, within 10 days. Mm. So uh, now uh, sometimes we can fudge on that a bit if we notify the FAA that we're waiting for some some um, uh, medical information or medical records. But uh, I mean, pilots can call and ask, and if, and they they can call and ask anonymously if that's of concern. But they can call and ask, and and that's that's just one of those. I mean, it's important. I I I can't overemphasize. I'm I'm much more concerned about somebody, uh, you know. Um, uh, living a long life than being able to fly an airplane. Uh, you know, it, you, you, like you can have somebody that comes in with a real high blood pressure and they can fly an airplane without any problem, but also I don't want them to have a stroke and be drooling out of their mouth for the next 20 years. So, you know, it's, it's, so it's important for people to take care of themselves. And, and speaking of that, and this is one of the things that drove me crazy about the whole COVID thing. You know, everybody, all the public health people talked about masking and six-foot distancing and, and booster shots and stuff like that. 
They didn't talk about losing weight, getting in shape, and eating right. And when it comes down to flying, those are really critical because uh, especially as, as the pilot population ages, uh, uh, trying to keep the weight down, which is always hard, staying in, in decent physical shape and eating right is critically important. Uh, I had an interesting discussion with an older pilot who uh, was talking about, he was, it was one of my lectures when we talked about uh, how old was too old to fly. And we were talking about uh, 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 hydrating while you fly long flights and eating right. And he said, what about power bars? Well, power bars are basically expensive candy bars. They're not real food. And it's time to, you know, pack a meal in a Tupperware, Tupperware thing and, and eat real food when you're, when you're, if you're flying long distances or stopping for lunch instead of doing that 15 minute guest stop and taking off again. So, you know, we're all human beings and it's important to, to stay healthy, not just for flying, but for life. That's refreshing to hear. I think, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, first off, uh, I want to go back to something that you said, which is talking about people opening up to their AMEs. A lot of people, I think, have a can have a, this idea in their head that AMEs are mandatory reporters, that they can't disclose something to an AME, even outside of a medical thing, without it going straight to the FAA. So that's not the case. Uh, it depends on the situation, but I will tell you the situation I had. We had a um, uh, a commercial balloon pilot who uh, uh, was in a, a uh, um, drunk driving accident. Uh, he was not somebody I did an, my, an exam on, but it was in the newspaper. And so the, the FAA would not take a report for me because I had no direct contact, but they would, they let me send the newspaper article to them. So, uh, I, I, I'm not sure what where, what the line is because for one thing is is a pilot could come to me and ask me the question about it and I wouldn't necessarily even know that they were a pilot. They might be somebody who was just learning to fly, or uh, and so it, it depends on how the information is presented. If it if it's a pilot I've done an AME medical on, uh, I think that's a little bit different because then I have information that I need to put down on their on their medical or inform the FAA that this is an issue if the pilot themselves have not informed the, the uh, uh, FAA and the pilot's under an obligation to do that. If you look at the back of your medical or that second page that you fold under, uh, it talks about reporting conditions that would make someone unsafe to fly. Mm -hmm. that, that makes, makes a lot of sense. So basically, uh, you know, talk to your AME uh, aside from, from going in for your medical, try to, you know, try to be honest with them and feel out information and, unless you're violating something, they're not likely to be using that information against you somehow. Right. And, and the, sometimes the other thing about it is, is that the, the, the wording is that you're supposed to report things uh, that are reportable. And, and, and it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to find out if something's reportable. In mm -hmm. other words, uh, if someone has cataract surgery, do they need to report that to the FAA right away? And, um, I think officially they are, uh, but I also uh, mentioned once in, in, uh, uh, in a, with a previous federal air surgeon in the audience when the question was asked, do they report every change in, in their medical condition? And according to the regs, you are supposed to report every change in your medical condition. So if you break a leg, you're supposed to report that. 
Well, if the 450,000 or so pilots reported every change in medical condition to the FAA, you can imagine how long we would be waiting for our special issuances or other things down there. I mean, you can just imagine, you know, that there's a certain difference between the law and the spirit of the law. So, um, or the spirit of the reg. So, uh, if every, I mean, that's, but that's, that's what the reg says is we're supposed to report every change in, in our medical condition. So you can imagine how that would be impossible for the <laughs> FA to tolerate. They would, they would be overwhelmed. It, it's always amazed me that the fact that the medical form uses the, how often they use the word ever that have you ever had any of these things like literally going back, like, Tell us about all your surgeries, literally meaning if you had a surgery after birth 50 years ago, then that needs to be on the list. I have trouble remembering what happened to me last year. (laughs) So, I mean, it, I mean, it, I mean, the report, every dental visit and every eye visit. And I mean, I mean, it's literally almost impossible for people to remember those or to have those dates down and so on. I mean, it, and, and it, quite honestly, it's pretty, it's not really relevant if, you know, when you had your dental hygiene visit, but officially you're supposed to report that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot to take in there. You have some, so I know you've got some advice that are tips for people going into this that can help a lot. You mentioned a couple at the beginning, uh, uh, but what can we all do to help our AMEs, to help ourselves and not make mistakes that get us into trouble? What, I mean, what's, what's the best way to, to balance all of this? Well, the first thing is, as I said uh, just a few minutes ago, you know, uh, keeping your weight down, exercising and eating right. So those are, the, those are just important that everybody should be doing. But let's say uh, uh, someone has uh, developed high blood pressure. Uh, the, the rules on that are pretty straightforward, and they're supposed to bring in with them a letter from their treating physician that says they're under good control. Uh, and if they're on a diuretic, there's, which is a, a pill that makes you urinate more, or also known as a water pill, uh, they, they are supposed to have recent uh, laboratory work to make sure that uh, their electrolytes uh, or the chemistries in their blood are not out of whack because of that electrolyte. So bringing that in with them smooths the process dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, and if someone doesn't know what they need to bring in, they could call the AME first or go online to the AME guide and find out that information. It's not that hard to find out. I mean, in other words, with, as the high blood pressure uh, one that I just mentioned, they could go to the AME guide and search high blood pressure or search hypertension and they will get those those answers. Mm-hmm. So that's and that's what really helps the, the pilot. I mean, the worst thing that I have to do tell the pilot is, look, I have to say, look, I can't give you your medical today because I need this information before I can sign it off. And right. and then they go scrambling around and, and looking for medical records or hospitalization records or whatever. And and um so it, calling in advance is the easiest or, um, uh, you know, look, checking the AME guide online and really finding out what's going to be necessary uh, for that visit. Okay. The, the other kind of common conditions that people have asked about involve things that, that they worry about coming up, like cholesterol. Let's talk about, well, is that anywhere on there? No. I mean, cholesterol in and of itself is, is, um, is not uh, uh, an issue for the FAA. 
except in some very rare situations. However, if you're on a special issuance for uh, uh, coronary disease or heart, heart disease related to your coronary vessels, uh, your cholesterol is important because uh, not treating it properly uh, is a risk factor. Okay. Um, uh, so, but, but I hate to harp on this, but you know, if you're 50 pounds overweight, you can take all the cholesterol lowering medicine in the world and it's not going to, it's not going to help you. I mean, you may lower <laughs> your cholesterol, but your life expectancy is significantly shortened by that, that weight. So there, you know, the Americans tend to want a pill to fix everything. And, and I wish there was a pill that was for exercise, but there isn't one. There's not, there's no decent pill for losing weight. It's, it's a matter of just not eating as much and exercising more, but, 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 the cholesterol number itself is not an important one. The, okay. the, if someone has had a problem with their blood sugars, the hemoglobin A1C, which is a test of what the blood sugar has been for the previous 90 days, can be very important. And the, and the FA gets very nervous that that number gets up to close to seven. So, uh, uh, and quite honestly, I would get nervous if that number was close to seven. I would say to that, uh, that patient that, or that pilot that they need to lose weight uh, and they need to cut out uh, carbs. So that's, that's important. So uh, tell me, tell me about that a little bit. So that is, that's where you start talking about pre-diabetes or things like that, uh, that people are looking at. What's the FAA's approach to that? A1C, pre-diabetes, or actual diabetes? Well, it, it, it can be a little complicated, but depending on the laboratory that you're using, 5.7 is the upper limit of normal for hemoglobin A1C, and then 5.8 to 6.4 uh, or 6.5 is considered pre-diabetes, and 6.6 or above is considered uh, uh, non-insulin-dependent diabetes. Usually insulin-dependent diabetes like 12, 13, 14, although I've seen non-insulin-dependent diabetics come in with those numbers as well. What has happened in uh, over the years is we tend to be more aggressive about treating blood sugars even in the pre-diabetic state or in a state that is known as insulin resistance. Now, being treated like with a drug like metformin, which is one of the medicines that lowers uh, 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 blood sugars, uh, that can be used in for the quote-unquote insulin resistance or, or to lower somebody's hemoglobin A1C, even when they're not diabetic, that is reportable to the FAA, but it's not something that would necessarily keep a person from getting their medical or putting them on a special issuance. If they are diagnosed with diabetes, the difference there can be whether they are what is called diet-controlled or whether they have to be on medicine. And, and that makes a difference. Diet-controlled meaning that they're losing weight, they're keeping away from carbohydrates, they can keep that hemoglobin A1C down. Uh, but if they can't do that and they have to take medications, then they fall into a different criteria for special issuance. So, um, but from a, a longevity point of view, you're far better off controlling diabetes, pre-diabetes with a diet than you are with uh, medication. Okay. And, and going back to uh, the very beginning of the discussion, when you talk about reportable, because you said that's certain things, for example, with that A1C level reportable, is that reportable also for people that are on uh, basic med? No, that's not, that's not covered by, on basic med. So um, uh, if, if they develop that problem uh, while on basic med, that's not reportable. Um, and if, they've, if it's something that's, that's they 
have been on a special issuance for, uh, and they go to basic med, uh, they, they're under basic med, it's not an issue anymore. Okay. So the same thing about like, look out for your health and uh, eat, eat well and exercise and lower your carbs and do everything you can to get those levels down. But uh, going kind of full circle on things, it's a, another example of how basic med puts you in a situation where you are doing what's right for you between you and your doctor and not necessarily uh, uh, between you and the FAA. Correct. And the, the other thing that, that is unfortunate is that um, when we fly, uh, especially if we fly a lot, and we're exposed to airport food, vending machine food and all that, it, it's really tough. It is really, really tough. And so uh, it's important uh, for people to work hard to eat a decent diet and keep the caloric count down. Uh, another thing, by the way, that it's not so much, uh, not that important for people who don't have high blood pressure, but for people that have high blood pressure, almost anything in a vending machine is going to be bad for them. Anything in a box, a bag, or, or frozen, or can is going to be bad for them. Uh, so the, I mean, when we fly, it's, it could be tough. And of course, if we fly a lot and you're sitting a lot, then, then it's important to figure out, okay, when can I fit in some exercise? When can I fit in a walk? Or is there a way that I could get on a, 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 a treadmill or an elliptical or hike up a hill in between flights? Or, I mean, so it, it takes some work. I mean, this isn't easy stuff. It, it's important uh, to think about it, plan it, and, and just got to do it. Makes sense, obviously. And uh, words to the wise from uh, a very, very trusted AME to all of us, and of course, uh, a, a good doctor. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Blue, for joining us this evening. It, this has been a wealth of knowledge, and I, I hope you'll come back on the show in the future, and, and we, can, we can dive into some more questions, because I'll tell you, our comment line has just been rolling and rolling and rolling. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun, and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. And, and of course, uh, to everyone, of course, look out there for that Norseman. If you're going to air venture, I know I want to go see it. I want to climb in the in see the inside this time. Anytime. Anytime. Absolutely. Have a good evening. You take care. Bye-bye now. And to all of you, thank you again for taking another evening of your time to spend with us here at Social Flight Live. We really do appreciate it and love having all of you on board for this adventure. Speaking of which, as I mentioned, we will be gone for uh, the next week or so on our No Magenta Lying trip, leaving at the beginning of next week. So very, very much looking forward to that. That means that there's no show next week, and uh, we'll update you if there will be a July 5th show. But otherwise, we will certainly see you coming back on Tuesday, July 12th, with actor and air show performer Robert Scratch Mitchell, followed on Tuesday, July 19th, by Matt Yunkin celebrating freight dogs. And uh, then we are all off to Air Venture and hope to see you there. Until next time, thank you again so much for joining us here on Social Flight Live, and I wish you all. Blue skies.